0: I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines and hope a few interesting insights come out. First, a word from the Fletcher School. Register by May 1st for Fletcher Live Online. This is a collection of five-week-long courses that give you the essential tools for today's global landscape. Engage with world-renowned faculty and enter a global community of fellow leaders, diplomats, CEOs and innovators tackling many of the same challenges as you. Courses include Negotiation, Strategy and Leadership for Social Impact, Economic Inclusion, Cyber Risk, and Understanding Climate Action. See show notes for details. Today, I speak with Mohamed Al-Arif. Arif's life follows the stunning trajectory of Indonesia's recent history. Arif was a student as the push against authoritarianism finally prompted Indonesia's president Suharto to resign. Arif helped create the institutions that cemented Indonesia's transition to the vibrant democracy it is today. He shares his mission to nurture today's youth to continue serving the country. He talks about his work to organize the Indonesian diaspora that has been a valuable source of creativity for decades. Arif, you've been—it's really great to, to speak today, and and um, you've really had front row seat in quite a number of really pivotal moments of Indonesia's recent history. I would love to bring you back to that time, ask you to describe a little bit what was your role and, and what was the mood like, what was going on inside you as these events happened.
1: Well, indeed, it's really an honor to uh, to take. Part in uh, or even witness, just witness uh, history of in the making, you know, uh, in my own country. During the fall of the New Order regime, when President Suharto eventually resigned, I was at the tail end of my uh, law school period. And as a student, I was actually quite an old student at that time, really the driving force behind the student movement that led to the downfall of the New Order regime was the younger, more junior students at that time. And the fact that I was still active in school and able to witness that in history was, was really amazing because we all remembered it all started with the Asian financial crisis crisis. Uh, in 1997, what was uh, started as, a, as, a, as an economic crisis then led to also a political crisis. Eventually, people rise up and demand change. And in May 1998, obviously driven by the youth idealism and the students. There was a once-in-a-lifetime sort of change uh, it, that that we were able to witness.
0: This was really a, an opposition against a very rigid authoritarian regime that has shown quite a lot of, even displayed uh, violence to, towards towards its people. So it, was, it sounds to me a very courageous set of steps that were that were taking place.
1: Indeed, obviously, we at that time, as you know, despite the fact that there was a lot of development successes in Indonesia uh, under the new order regime for the past, uh, you know, three decades, but obviously it was also at the cost of, to some extent, repression politically. And and I think that was what my colleagues, the students, and so on wanted. It happened, I think, at the right time. Indonesia was ready for democratic processes, and we're very fortunate that. Since then, 1998, democracy and all the electoral processes that comes with it uh, have sustained in Indonesia. Yeah, and yeah. so we've uh, reached a stage where we are not only successful from a development sense, but also from a governance sense, in a sense that yeah. we've evolved uh, as a nation. And we're now open with thriving civil society, with democratic institutions and uh, I was very fortunate that, uh, you know to witness that you know many decades ago in my younger days uh, to happen
0: and at the time uh, when you were still a student and 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 taking part in in this this process what was going through your mind what were your feelings it was in a way taking a big risk to try to change the system and, and at the time did you envisage the trajectory that the country would take i mean i imagine it must have been Period of quite big uncertainty, but a, a feeling of some compromises. Maybe you had to make to shape the the system.
1: Yes. Well, what's interesting is, is obviously when we started, uh, I certainly felt it, and I'm sure my fellow student leaders and, and and so forth also felt it. Obviously, we we don't know how things will will end up. Uh, many are also fearful of our safety yeah. <laughs> and 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 so forth, but. What I felt and what I saw was how brave they were and everyone was too in their, in their demand for change. I recalled the days when my parents actually would ask me to stay out of it. You have to stay home. You have to ensure that you're safe and so on. Uh, I don't want to see you anywhere in, uh, you know, among those demonstrators, protesters and so forth, among the tear gas and sometimes, uh, you know, bullets flying and so forth. Yeah. I still need you around my parents uh, said and uh, there was a moment where there was a, a, indeed a physical clash and there were some casualties among among students my fellow students and uh, at that time and I think that's when even the feeling of fear just suddenly vanished and uh, there's a lot of a lot of parents angry you know why would our own government do this to these young people and then at that stage, my father was like, "Go join your friends, go just go oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so uh, and 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 obviously i I don't need his permission to join i I've, I've been joining and so forth, but even among these parents uh, uh the feeling of fear is no longer there, and that uh change is inevitable and and indeed, it happened on on may twenty first uh you know nineteen ninety eight and uh, I was in in the parliament building at that time, there was only one television set and we set it on, I remember it was CNN and actually the the, the government channel, uh, TVRI and CNN crews were all around filming us. And uh, the words came out from the mouth of of the president at that time, I hereby resign from my duties. And we knew that that was the beginning of change and everyone just jumped for joy and so forth and uh, i have friends calling me from all over the world i saw you at cnn <laughs> so uh <laughs> that was a uh, quite a historic moment for the nation and for all of us and for me personally as well who who witnessed it
0: wow so the the emotions must be must have been really really strong for for your for your parents to to even be encouraging you to go and 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 risk your life actually because of the violence in, in the in the streets so it must have been really a very special moment where the whole country was galvanized against the current regime
1: that's right yeah because you know i i've been joining the, the protest without obviously telling my parents they thought i was in school or in in, in classes yeah. and and so forth and they were just seeing it on television in 1998 my new our only means of communications was verbally among us there was no social media at that time yeah. uh, there was uh, not much you know in, uh, in the internet and and not even text message very few people yeah. actually owned yeah. cell phones so the fact that we were able to galvanize movement that size without any means of communications very very basic uh, form of communication was amazing you know i think you can start a revolution easier these days with, with you know <laughs> with the means of communications that we have. But back then, in 1998, you know, it was yeah, words yeah. of mouth. We would move from one area in, in in you know in in Jakarta to another just to keep safe and tell our friends and so on, and we would bus our friends somewhere uh, to meet with them at the parliament building and so forth and, and ensuring that all of us are well fed and so forth it's just an amazing feeling you know as a yeah. as somebody that age and in in, in in our 20s to be witnessing that change
0: yeah, well, and so then, the, so Harto's message came through the the end of the uh, of, of the current regime. But that's when actually this was the beginning f- for you in a way, because this was about kickstarting the the process of helping define w- what a a more inclusive and de- democratic system would would look like. So, so can you maybe take us back to to that time? It's like okay, the the great news is there, but then oh wow. <laughs> What goes on next?
1: Yes. Well, we know when uh, countries go through democratic transitions, uh, it's just uh, the fall of a regime. Normally, it's just the beginning. And you actually have to, (laughs) the process that comes afterwards will make or break it. And this democratic, this transition to democracy must be safeguarded. I was also very fortunate. I was a law school student and I decided to uh, major in constitutional law. And uh, there were like 250 people in, my, in my, my cohort in law school at the University of, Indone- right. of Indonesia. And in, in our second year, we were, we were asked to focus on a particular major. So most of my colleagues obviously take business law, which uh, <laughs> has the potential to make a lot of money later, or international law and so forth. Only five of us decided to actually take constitutional law. At that time, we were still in the new, Roger, new order regime. People were asking, "Why do you want to take constitutional law?" I mean, the constitutional the constitution is defined by one person, and and uh, and uh, and I said, "Well, you know, they could be changed in the future, and uh, constitutional lawyers will be needed, and so forth." So afterwards, I realized that after the fall of of the new order regime. We have to create the parameters for this transition to democracy to really happen in a really nice fashion. Almost not long after, I received one of the most fascinating job offers I come across in my career. There's this think tank group called the National Democratic Institute, came into Indonesia to support the transition process and help uh, design, uh, you know, the electoral systems uh, that comes after. After the fall of, of the Nord regime, there was a, a period of transition about one year, where until the first democratic election itself happened. And uh, during that one year, I was actually involved, met with members of parliament, met with constitutional experts and so forth to help design the electoral system of of Indonesia. I was uh, involved in in that and also in spearheading this uh, movement of starting a domestic election monitoring campaign mirrored after the success of of what happened in the Philippines a a decade prior as you know our, our neighbor to the north the philippines went through the democratic process earlier than us a decade before in 1986 so we looked at their experience and uh, at that time a group called namfrel was 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 quite instrumental in ensuring that the post marcos sort of uh, election was free and fair and so we thought we should emulate that 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 sort of initiative in indonesia and when we spearheaded the process Help uh, you know initiatives uh, uh, in Indonesia to to start this. There was a lot of interest from communities and and just civil society to take part in it. And lots of local groups like uh, KIP, KIPP K I P P Unfrail and and uh, Forum Rector was uh, established to galvanize this movement. And it was it was quite a success. Uh, the election happened a year after. In uh, June 1999, we facilitated that the dom- domestic election monitoring uh, campaign, and uh, international observers also came, and it was deemed as uh, as the first uh, free and fair election in in Indonesia at that time.
0: And it, it must have been exhilarating to to be a part of the core team that was designing the the nuts and bolts, encoding these intentions, this emotion into. Uh, an actual infrastructure, a framework that actually would would work. And I imagine, as you mentioned, there were only five students of constitutional law in your cohort. I would imagine the number of legal experts I- in how to design a democratic system. I, I think there were very few, I imagine. I mean,
1: Yes, well, I, I don't know if, if part of the core team is the best way to uh, illustrate. I was a I was someone who supported the the, the process, but there was a, a core team, obviously, in, in in the legislature and also within civil society and 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 every elements of society pretty much uh, you know involved in developing this this system. We were quite cognizant and worry uh, about the potential of elite capture in the process uh, yeah, during that yeah. time. So uh, we ensured that the uh, the process should be as inclusive as possible. So it is yeah. not only driven by members of parliament who happens to, <laughs> to, 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 to be, you know, the result of the past election, which is not so free and fair at that time. Right. But it's, 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 it's parliament plus, obviously they're lawmakers. So they, they should enact this law. But the substance of it needs to be needs to go through an inclusive process, and this is where yeah. these public consultations involving all elements of society, academicians who are uh, legal experts, civil society groups. Almost everybody under the sun had had feedback to it. There were several versions of, of of the electoral law. It was eventually amalgamated. it was decided that they kept to the proportional systems. for example, eventually they decided on a, on a compromise on what we did. We felt it was the the right system. As you know during the new order regime there was there was only three political parties that were recognized. Uh, during the first uh, democratic election in, in 1999, 48 parties were were recognized and and can contest in the election, and the results were astounding. It's really free and fair. And one thing to add, we also had uh, statistics came into play. We introduced this concept, uh, and uh, I was also involved in the team that that did that called parallel vote tabulation which we looked at mm-hmm. using stratified st- st- uh, random stamp- sampling uh, you know we looked there were about 125000 polling stations across the country and we looked we took samples uh, that is statistically representative and through that parallel vote tabulation we can actually ascertain that the official final result was indeed accurate because it was mm-hmm. it matched with our parallel vote tabulation so that parallel vote tabulation is, is now known famously as quick counts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah. now Indonesian elections are never complete without these quick counts because, you know, normally the official results have, uh, are announced a month later, but the quick counts you can pretty much know the next day after an election. So, uh, yeah, it was a quite exhilarating process that we actually wow. uh, did the first quick count in the country.
0: And uh, the objective was double, I imagine. One was to obviously to to make sure that the elections were were secure, that there was no uh, manipulation. But then there's the advantage that it it allows quick feedback and immediately providing clarity to the the country about the
1: the outcome. That's correct. I think uh, if you looked at what I explained, we sort of try to safeguard the process through several avenues. Obviously, during the, the promulgation of the laws itself, including that to ensure that the law that was enacted are definitely uh, create an even playing field for for everyone. So uh, that's one. Secondly, through the involvement of citizenry itself, through domestic election monitoring uh, initiatives. So each of the pollings, we, I remember, you know, we had to recruit 250,000 uh, volunteers, because there was 125,000 polling station, we need two volunteers in each <laughs> polling station. So we need a quarter of a million uh, volunteers to to just be present in the polling station and ensure that the fraud, there was no coercion, there was no, you know, people were, were able to vote freely. Uh, and then third, this uh, parallel vote tabulation ensures that there was no uh, rigging in the in the counting process, in the tallying process, and then that the results, the official result, definitely uh, match with statistical count, if you like. And thirdly, mm-hmm. having international observers, and at that time, you know, the, the, the international observer mission was headed by former President Carter, so it was quite high level. It was, you know, the medias were all there. The eyes of the world were on Indonesia's democratic transition process, provided recognition. Of the process itself. So when the international observers concluded that we were there, we were we observe and we conclude that the process was indeed free and fair, that provided the legitimacy that uh, the country needs to move yeah. forward.
0: Yeah, and can you maybe share a bit of light for, 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 for those of us who are maybe a bit less familiar with Indonesia, you, you talk about state capture earlier and I think um, the way I understood it is under Soharto, Part of the state had been captured by, I believe, this was part of the military that had interests in uh, controlling decision making within some of the political institutions, but also had control over significant parts of the economy. And when you described the, the fall of Suharto, there was a brief window to really reset the system. Uh, and you mentioned it was important to avoid this process of state capture to reoccur. How did you ensure that that didn't happen? And, and how did you, in a way, preserve relationships that were still needed with some of these uh, powerful groups? Or what compromises did you have to make in a way?
1: That's a great question. And and I think if we learn from uh, what happened in the Arab Spring and how a democratic process could always move uh, one step forward and two steps back, I think we made a, a lot of, definitely our leaders at that time, made a lot of good decisions to ensure that uh, the democratic transition in Indonesia indeed led to something that's sustainable and and it's sustained until now. The reform is just not in sort of the the democratic institutions, but it's also really widespread. We looked at uh, revisit civil military relations in the country, right? And also, I think there was quite a a lot of willingness for even within the military to to reform at that time, I think uh, figures like, including former President uh, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, was was actually also played a pivotal role in terms of looking at this new paradigm in in Indonesian military and and to pull themselves out of the political process, yeah. uh, and which sustained until now. And I think yeah. that's uh, that's that's quite that's quite important. We've had quite a thriving civil society even under uh, you know uh, the old regime, but. The floodgates were just open after the transition, and that led to uh, just a very uh, thriving movement that created as a as a countervailing forces, if you like, to the process, and and they helped safeguard everything. and And uh, I think this whole thing, all the elements in, play, including economic sort of reforms and so forth, happened just at the right time. Indonesia's, I think, I should say, is. I, I was quite young at that time, in my 20s, so I cannot claim credit that I was in it took part in 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 pushing for those, uh, you know, high level reforms and so forth. But definitely, my people who were in power at that time made the right decisions, and uh, also realized that this is a this is a, a once in a lifetime opportunity for indonesia to indeed get it right uh since it's uh in since its independence i think uh we're we're quite proud i mean in retrospect if we look at process and also what what have we have achieved between then and 25 years later now uh it's amazing what what we've achieved and what we were able to stay in not only that we're economically very vibrant but also we have a thriving civil society and i think we 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 have the making of just being a very formidable nation economically uh, with strong institutions to back it up
0: and as a kind of casual observer of indonesia something i tend to pick up in my my, my readings is this uh, theme of the, um, al- although the institution of the military was pushed away for or or took a backseat from the political process, it still features quite prominently in debates about uh, the stability of the country. And it's as if its absence from politics is also in the background, as in it could it could always come back. And therefore, it, it plays a kind of a, it's a shadow that actually uh, sounds quite of a large size, if you like. So I'd, I'd love to Maybe if you could clear up my my superficial understanding of this, that would be helpful.
1: No, I, I I think when we think about the Indonesian military and so forth, we have to look at a very long continuum uh, in in our nation's history. I respect them as a, as an institution. Obviously, there is a period in 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 our history perhaps they could have made better decisions, but in the fight against. Dutch colonial rule, they played a key role uh, in ensuring uh, independence and so forth. And during the New Order regime, uh, I think we've said quite enough in terms of uh, how they could have been better. But I think going forward, the military, there's a lot of enlightened sort of elements within the military to ensure that are definitely staying within their parameters and also playing their role in terms of uh, ensuring uh, unity uh, within diversity within within the country, and I think we're we're seeing that. And um, I think, like any other institutions in in the country, it's not monolithic. There are perhaps elements that uh, want to go back to the past, but definitely uh, there are more uh, elements that that believes in the reforms and and just believe in professionalism of, of the military. And safeguard our ideology, the Panchasila, to ensure that the nation thrives within that that diversity. So I, I, I'm actually not worried on that front. Uh, I'm very optimistic that we have enough checks and balances in in the country yeah. to to ensure that we don't go back uh, to to the past, but we're we're really you know aiming to to the future.
0: Yeah, I'd love also maybe to go back to. To your youth, actually, it's like listening to you. It sounds like you 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 were very ind- independent-minded. You you kn- you knew where you wanted to to go, but I, I'm sure your 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 family upbringing played a big role in, in 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 maybe giving you the space and the freedom to to pursue your your interests. So, could you kind of take us back? To how is it like? What what kind of discussions you you were having at the dinner table?
1: Yeah. I have to be honest with you. I was a lazy student. I actually, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I find it very hard to believe.
1: <laughs> I I I actually my, my laziness stems from the fact that I didn't have a, a a vision or a purpose in life early in the beginning of as a student. At that time, I went to law school. Yeah, you know, um, I had to do this and and so forth, and hopefully it'll it'll give me livelihoods uh, going forward. That was the the thinking, the mm-hmm. simple yes. thinking that that uh, I had, the fact that we had a revolution, the fact that we had a democratic transition, that that actually emboldened my purpose in life, right? right? Yes. and uh, I, I actually, you know, even though we had to dodge bullets and 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 be in the front lines among these protests and and so forth, but it happened at the right time for me. I think it not only saved the nation, it actually saved me because uh, <laughs> because if it, if it didn't happen I actually didn't I, I wouldn't have a, a, a real purpose in life I think uh, as a student it happened and and I realized look this happened we worked so hard for it and now we have change so I felt I need to contribute I need to be part of this democratic process and that's why I was involved in in, in the group that that designed the electoral process and and also does uh, election monitoring and so forth and when we eventually, had a democratically elected government in place, which had uh, a lot of idealistic goals uh, going forward, and I thought the next step would be, you know, economic go back to the path of economic development and and usher in recovery in the country, and so forth. That, that's why I, I joined a multilateral organization that supports Indonesia's economic development, and have been doing so the past twenty years. So I think if any. My parents uh, just told, just asked me to, you know, whatever you do, you do, just make sure that you bring benefit to society. And I didn't know how to define that myself in the beginning of my, my student years. But the democratic st- transition helped me or pushed me to uh, have that purpose in life for me.
0: Wow. Yeah. And it, it sounds like it, it really gave you a direction, a very long-term direction the last 25 years in terms of the democratic project is something that um, we have to keep working at. It's not a once-off, you set it up and it runs on its own. So it's, it sounds like you're still animated and motivated by this early kind of electricity jolt that that, that uh, galvanized you into into action. I'd love maybe to, to ask you to, um, it sounds like, you still you see the progress, but you see that this is something that you you have to keep working on to to, to consolidate to, to to help the country develop. And and the sense I get is that isn't it difficult? How do we motivate young people now to still see to still have a sense of urgency that this is a it's a relatively young process, and, and it's important that idealistic driven young people dedicate their life to public service, even, even in 2022.
1: Uh, that's right. I think continuing that spark, this project is an intergenerational uh, endeavor. It doesn't stop with me. It doesn't stop with my seniors. It needs to be continued with my kids as well. So they need to be as passionate as, as our, our, our generation was. And I think that's, that's, that's the key. Uh, when I was young, my grandfather used to told me, Stories and how, uh, yeah, as a means to motivate me, how he fought the war against colonialism, and you need to continue that spark and uh, and 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 so forth. I, I the story doesn't resonate because there was no uh, colonists around me, <laughs> so uh, I mean, Indonesia was stable at that time and 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 so forth. The fact that we had democratic transition for me was my my moment to to really. Generate that spark, and I think future generations. I'm in my 40s now. I think if I live long enough, maybe I have 10, 15 more years of productive years left. Uh, we can think about ways, and I can further contribute to the country. But not long. This torch needs to be passed on to the to the younger mm-hmm. generation. Yeah. I see a lot of, uh, even though you know they might not be directly involved in in policymaking or, or public service and so on. I see a lot of, among the, the millennials, actually, there's, there's, I see a lot of motivation to, to actually empower uh, society and empower communities through their respective expertise. We see a lot of entrepreneurialism now in, yeah. in Indonesia, creativity and so on. I think what they do in itself is public service, even though they're not in the public sector. So I hope that they're able to find their spark when I talk to them. And my favorite thing to do is actually talk to the younger generations, people who were actually not born when this democratic transition happened, but they're now actually starting to go to college and so forth. Normally, they would invite me. I said, look, Indonesia is not a static place. And when we celebrate our 100th anniversary as an independent nation, we will be an even formidable nation. You know, we will be the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world, and hopefully by that time we will avoid the middle income trap and become a high income economy. And uh, we're already the largest economy in Asia, and a member of the G20, and it will be even a formidable nation. We're building the foundation towards that direction, but you're going to carry on the torch. You need to think about what what you plan to do to uh, to head to that direction because when you know, we reach 2045 when Indonesia celebrates its hundredth year as an independent nation. They will be my age now, and uh, I will be in my seventies. And they need to, they need to uh, rise up to the occasion and, and 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 do their bit. And I hope this continue because it's an intergenerational struggle. It's an intergenerational struggle to ensure that these institutions. Uh, gets stronger and more efficient in terms of, you know, delivering to the people, and more accountable. And so uh, everybody needs to do their part, whether they decide to work in the public sector and in the private sector and become an entrepreneurs. And I think we're we're heading towards that direction. I'm very confident about that about that process. I'm, I'm an optimist by by birth.
0: And I must say, I've I've met some absolutely outstanding young people in Indonesia that do amazing things. Um, whether it's uh, entrepreneurship in in uh, retail or helping uh, r- rural communities deal with uh, innovative ways to treat waste in in fintech to to deal with. Uh, the uh, fact that the infrastructure in in some of the islands is, is limited so so how to uh, enable people to to become banked even though uh, on their in their villages there might, might not be infrastructure for that so so I, I must say many of these challenges in indonesia are quite unique actually the demographics the geography the infrastructure it actually takes a, a a young Indo- indonesian creative mind to find solutions that fit uh, to that environment so i, I actually sh- share your optimism as well even as a as a as an outsider here
1: <laughs> well you know we look at the pool of talent that we have right in indonesia they just concluded the census recently the population's 272 uh, million people fourth largest nation in the world we still have a our demographic dividend; most of the bulk of the population is in the productive years, and so forth. So, in essence, there's a lot of there, there, there's a good talent pool, and they just need to be enabled and to to be their best. Yeah. We need to invest in that human capital to ensure that they are the driving force for this change to continue, and this transformation to continue, and this growth to continue, this inclusivity to continue. And this disparity to end, and uh, so I think the government is is investing in, in in building the foundation towards that, in ensuring that there's uh, the the infrastructure is in place, not only physical infrastructure, but also our our our, our human capital and 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 so forth are are all in place uh, in order to help us uh, get there. I think uh, there. There, there's a strong realization for that. And as for the next generation, we've seen how a few bright minds and great ideas and so on, when enabled with the right public policy, when enabled with the right capital and so forth, they can ch- achieve a lot. Whether, As you said, whether it's in fintech, whether it's ensuring that governments are more accountable and and, 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 and so forth. Another thing I should I should mention I think actually one one big decision point that we got it right in the beginning of the democratic transition was decentralization. Indonesia is too big of a nation to be governed in a centralized fashion so in 2000 they they uh, introduced a series of decentralization law that devolved a lot of the uh, uh, authorities of central government to to local governments so in a sense there's several spheres of governments that are accountable at different levels this created a lot of also it brings government closer to the people in 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 a sense right so uh, a nation this big must must be governed in in that fashion we need to obviously improve on the accountability front and ensuring Mm -hmm standards service standards are are, are there you know um, across the nation and I should note I think finally our current president president joko Widodo is a product of that decentralization yeah I, I he he is actually the first president in in the republic that actually ascends the, the structure starting from a, a mayor of a of a local town a governor of a of a province and and now a, a national figure that's the first time we've we've ever Seen that sort of uh, ascendancy process in terms of a, yeah. of, a, of a of a political figure, and I think we will be seeing more of that in the future. Where if you want to hold uh, national roles, you have to prove your mantle uh, in, in the different sort of spheres of government, and 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 so it's like a it's like a test runs your test runs yes. Uh, yes. before you hold a higher office.
0: And what you were talking about in terms of decentralization, but at the same time ensuring consistent services, I just wanted to share, I mean, I've, I've been uh, really, really pleased to be able to 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 work in Southeast Asia uh, it was about 10 years ago. I was in Brunei for two years, but I, t- I took the chance to travel throughout Borneo, and I was very interested in, in um some of the communities that lived uh, on the border between uh, Sarawak and Kalimantan, it, it really brought home the, the size of the challenge of managing a country like Indonesia, where, uh, I mean, in the heart of Borneo, there's um, quite a lot of logging that is going on. And um, the uh, on the Malaysian side, they were taking advantage of the, the labor pool from Kalimantan, which would just walk over the, the jungle, because uh, there's pretty much no border, no border crossing and uh, take advantage of of these young, uneducated uh, people with no other opportunities. And the the work conditions that they subjected these people to were were absolutely atrocious. I mean, some of the comments were, for example, they prefer to employ Indonesians because when there's an industrial accident, they can just throw the body at the side of the roads, whereas when it's a Malaysian, they have to pay compensation. So that, for me, was quite a shock to see. Wow, this is uh, this is the size of the challenge we're, we're dealing with. So I, I guess it, it, it's. It, I mean, even if you're a local leader in a place like Kalimantan, to be able to provide consistent service and opportunities in such a remote environment, that's like um, it, it's. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, it it takes a very cool cool head to be able to manage that i guess
1: yes like like everything else things are still work in progress and hopefully but hopefully it's it's uh it's heading towards uh, the right, the right directions uh, consistency of services consistency of uh, uh rule of law and so forth we have to think about that going forward as 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 a nation economically we we also need to Im- ensure that there's more equity not just among the uh, also regional in, in, in inequities. Uh, and, and you alluded uh, to this in your example needs to be addressed. And establishing uh, new growth centers in the country as the size of, of Indonesia is, is, is key. I think these are steps where definitely our, our leaders, the both in legislature and in, in the executive branch, understands. But uh, obviously, it's, it, it takes time to, to improve. 60 percent uh well if you look at the, the economic composition pretty much 80 percent of the economy is is in one island java and then uh, out of that maybe 60 60 70 it's it's in the jakarta greater jakarta area so we need to the government is 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 doing the right thing in terms of trying to invest in in infrastructure to ensure that there are other growth centers, including Kalimantan and, and, and so forth, there are economic opportunities for my you know fellow countrymen who happen to be brought up and and, and lived in that area. And and this push to to uh, move the capital and so forth, I think it's 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 part and parcel part of that yeah. uh, decision. I think Indonesia can only reach that stage where it eventually became the fifth or fourth largest economy in the world by 2045 by by ensuring that the, the economic pie obviously grows in a more inclusive fashion but ensuring also that there are less regional disparities by creating bolstering the opportunity of other growth centers in the country beyond java in outlying islands including uh, uh, in places that you you've mentioned so uh, i think it's getting there
0: yeah. And then p- part of what you're also doing more recently is trying to harness the, the potential of Indonesians living abroad to try to to see how that can be channeled for the benefit of the country. I'd love to hear you share a little bit about that, if you don't mind.
1: Yes. So um, I'm I'm currently in my 40s and I've actually spent a, a third of my life uh, abroad as a exactly. diaspora. It just happens that my career takes me here, but I, I'm I'm always itching to ensure that I, I, I still have one feet in, in the country and, and contribute as much as we can, even though we're, we're actually not there. So obviously started my career in Indonesia, did quite a lot there, and, but moved here to the, to the United States in 2006. And in 2012, uh, there was this idea among us, and we had a very good ambassador at that time in, in, in the U.S., the Indonesian ambassador in, in, in Washington, Let's try to harness this potential of the diaspora. How many are there, and so forth? Uh, at that time, we were thinking about just diaspora in in the United States alone. I think it almost two hundred thousand uh, people. But when we introduced the idea, even our diaspora uh, outside of the U.S. wanted to be part of the the first conference that we held in in in, in July two thousand and twelve. And we're we're almost celebrating our our. uh, 10th year or one decade since that first diaspora conference and it's actually quite a formidable group of people the number of indonesian citizens these are indonesians living abroad that still holds uh, an indonesian passport amounts to around 4.7 million people i -hmm. mean uh, this is the the whole capital of ireland uh, <laughs> and it's uh, the size of Singapore, <laughs> <laughs> if it were its own province, it's actually the fifteenth largest province in uh, in Indonesia. So, uh, n- not only in terms of numbers, actually, Philippe, but also. In terms of the quality of the of yeah. of, of this the human capital uh, among the diaspora, I mean they're very obviously very able, can compete globally, and very exposed to international best practices and so on. These are assets of, of the country, an extended arm of the country that that can bring uh, Indonesia to to the next level. So we established what we called uh, in 2012 the Indonesian Diaspora Network IDN. The aim is to to harness this. This uh, the strength of the diaspora, and engage with the government and think about ways we can we can do that, and and uh, in many fronts. And we have task forces who are still active in in terms of doing that. I was elected by my uh, fellow diaspora to be its first president from oh, two thousand and twelve okay. to two thousand fifteen. So I helped build that that organizational foundation that created the diaspora network, the diaspora organization. We're now in in many parts of the world we have a you know a, obviously a strong network of us and uh we have a, a good team secretary team that's based in jakarta that and um, and since 2012 uh, every two years we've always held our sort of uh what we call a congress the congress of the indonesian diaspora every two years that's when uh, every summer well somewhere in the North American sense, you know, June yes. or July, everyone would be invited to go back home and, and engage with, with our fellow countrymen and think about the trajectory of the nation and so forth. Yes. Some even move back home. And I've, I've moved back home in the past where I took sabbatical leave from, uh, from my role and uh, serving my government. Uh, we're encouraging Indonesian talents to to go back home when we can, when they can. Obviously, they have to fulfill their duties as uh, in they're in their families and so forth. But when they can, let's fill our, fill our duties to the nation as well. So uh, we yeah. encourage them to, to do so. And a lot has come home, served in, in the government, in, in, uh, in, 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 in public agencies and so forth. And there's a lot of exciting stories and how uh, these talents working, making a lot of money in the investment bank and would move back Making close to nothing, but they're extremely happy and and making change uh, in, in in the country, whether on a short term basis or in a long term basis. Some some even yeah. permanently have moved to to yeah. Indonesia yeah. and 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 foster uh, transformation, reform, and change. Yeah.
0: This sounds like a really phenomenal organization to be able to, to uh, energize the diaspora community and also help network and give opportunities for, uh, for them to give back, either temporarily or, or even even permanently. Correct. Um,
1: and what I, I often tell uh, the diaspora story is that this amalgamation or collaboration among elements of the Indonesian society on the home front and the mm. diaspora overseas have gone back from the beginning of our of our nation, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, if you recall, uh, our first president, President Sukarno, obviously he fought against colonialism on the home front. But there are also diasporas like Mohamed Hatta, our vice president, who fought for uh, the ending of colonialism from abroad. He was, he was there based in the Netherlands doing his studies and so forth. And Muhammad Hatta eventually came home and uh, collaborated with President Sukarno and spearheaded the revolution that eventually led to Indonesia's independence. So this marriage between his citizens in the home front and also Indonesian diaspora overseas has been since the beginning yeah. of our at the start it's of our nation. So we should continue this this collaboration. Hopefully our our fellow countrymen and back home considers us as, as somebody who's as nationalistic and as patriotic and as as nation loving as they are, even though we're not there, you know, then and that we're able to contribute to the nation in, in in the respective capacities that we have outside of the country. So I think hopefully this will continue and uh, eventually will will strengthen us as a as a nation because you need somebody who is exposed to to the world as well. But somebody, the, our fellow countrymen back home knows the lo- local context. This marriage yeah. will be good. My final story on on diaspora, if I may, Philippe, is our our third president, President Beji Habibi, who um, who we considers as a as an exemplary diaspora. He passed away several years ago, but as you know, uh, we invited him to many of our diaspora congress and have given him the lifetime achievement award as a diaspora. He actually lived in, in Germany for many years as an aeronautic engineer and has been very successful in what he does. But when the country calls him to come home, he actually didn't hesitate. So he left everything behind, his good life and so forth, moved back to the country, built the country, and have contributed a lot uh, you know, to the country. And when the transition happened, the democratic transition happened, He was the vice president and eventually became president. And he was his predisposition was to open up Indonesia for democratic values and democratic system. So when I met with President Habibi just a couple of months before we awarded him with the Diaspora Lifetime Achievement Awards, I asked him, you know, Habibi, I'm I'm a constitutional lawyer and I was in the trenches during the 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 democratic transition as a student, you were not hesitant to be an advocate of democracy and introduce democratic institutions in the country. What led you to that? And and I said, I live as, as a diaspora for three decades overseas. I lived in a democracy before, and I know that this is something that Indonesia needs to invest in. So he was enlightened about it. Partly because of his exposure, of his world yeah. exposure as at the, a at the diaspora. And we were very fortunate that when during the democratic transition, we had a president who was enlightened, uh, whose predisposition was towards the introduction of democratic institutions. And we should also consider that because he was exposed to the world, because he had lived as a diaspora. Uh, so that's, a, that's actually a nice story to tell. And I think... He will be remembered as uh, Bapak Democracy Indonesia, or the Father of Democracy uh, in Indonesia, uh, President Habibi.
0: It's a fascinating
1: story because it inserts this
0: effort of diaspora in in a, in a historical, like a the, the kind of the, the historic historic roots of, of uh, Indonesia's success as a country. I think it's a great way to 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 incentivize patriotically minded Indonesians to be comfortable. To venture out and to come back as well as part of the the wider Indonesian family. I think that's a very powerful story.
1: Exactly. And I think when I meet with my diaspora colleagues, especially those who just move and so forth, and I said, look, the world is your playground. So expose yourself to to the world, gain as much experience as you can. It's your university. Be as successful as you can. Reach for the stars. Just one thing, don't forget to come home when you're ready. So I think that's the message that uh, uh, I tell my fellow diaspora. I I came home for three years and served the country. I came back here partly of family reasons. When you have college-age kids, uh, they have uh, aspirations, obviously. But once my obligation to to my family ends, hopefully... uh, the thing in my head is I want to be on the first flight home and uh, <laughs> and, and, and continue uh, whatever my uh, fellow countrymen are, are doing in whatever capacity. This should be the dream of, of every Indonesian diaspora to actually just come home, come back to the mothership and uh, play our role. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a very noble uh, goal to uh, aim for.
0: Arif, I've uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I wanted to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to share, or any reflections, or any any message to 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 other GMappers.
1: As you can see, I'm a very proud Indonesian. I'm only also uh, quite a proud citizen of the world. <laughs> but uh, I should add on top of that, I'm actually a I'm a proud alumnus of Fletcher and and GMap, especially because an education is not just uh, what you learn in class, what you're exposed to academically uh, with your professors and so on. But it's the the link and the bridge and the network that you built uh, during that education process. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, I'm at all just uh, looking at my other uh, friends and colleagues and my, co- just among my cohort and beyond that have achieved so much. And I think, a conversation with them on the phone or during dinner and so on just just inspired me to do more if I can. They just put me to shame because, you know, I've just experienced I, I've just explained to you what I went through in life, but many of my other friends in GMAP have achieved much, much more that, that are so inspiring. I think I think this is the strength of the, the GMAP program in, in Fletcher. It's the, the connections that you built. During that process, that uh, that is amazing. So, it's like the exposure uh, is become just ten times fold uh, because of the of those connections that you forge uh, during GMap. So, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast, and uh, I'm I'm just a, a very honored uh, alumni of Fletcher and GMap. If individually we can achieve a lot, imagine what we can do collectively as a group <laughs> True. we can change the world
0: <laughs> thanks thanks very much Arif and just I'd like to echo that uh, for, for me this GMAP experience has been phenomenal and I feel also very privileged that even with people completely outside of my uh, circle whether from different countries or completely different backgrounds such as you there's this network that we can reach out to and we somehow have a common language that allows us to, to, to exchange on, on, a, on, a, on a very deep level actually and I, I value that Thanks for listening. Please follow us to get notified when new episodes are released.